Yeah, and that was uh, 13-year-old Sophie Perry, who's playing the offertory for us this morning. And uh, I think we're going to follow that up with her brother, Fisher, who's 10. You ready to go next week, Fisher? Okay, he's on, he's on tap for next week. So we'll be all ready for that, Fisher. And uh, we're grateful for your participation in the service here. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I have a card here from uh, the Hess family. It says, uh, Brother Allen and members of Community Baptist Church, you will never know how much it meant to our family for all the kindness and love you showed us and gave to our family during our time of sorrow. Thanks for all the work you did to make John's memorial service successful. He would have been very proud. We have received so many amazing comments about the service. Here is a small token of love, and they enclosed a check for $200. Um, to go along with that card. So I'll give that to Joy. She'll take care of that. And if you weren't here for the service, if you missed that, this auditorium was full. I mean, it it was amazing. Uh, When Randy called me and said that they would have uh, probably expected a full auditorium, I, I, I was honest with you, I didn't really believe him. I didn't think, how could you... You know, for a memorial service, you know, how would you get that many people to come? But but they did and came from all over and from uh, Alabama and Atlanta. And I'm not sure where all they came from, but it was a great service. And the testimonies they gave of John's life was just uh, tremendous. And so you missed a you missed a blessing if you weren't able to be here. It was a great thing. Um, And then we had. uh, I forgot to mention, too, in the prayer requests, um, there's a lady, Kathleen McManus. Uh, you, she may be listening in this morning. Sometimes she does. Uh, who's contemplating moving here to Chattanooga from New Jersey. And uh, will be visiting the city eight, the 18th to the 24th. And is, will, won't get here till Sunday evening, so she'll be here for a Wednesday night Bible study but wanting us to pray with her that she would know the Lord's leadership in this. She wants to be near uh, a church like ours, and um, believe it or not, come all the way from New Jersey for this little church here. But uh, she said, sounds on the Internet like you have a lot of fun here, and we do. (laughs) So uh, that's because we enjoy each other's company, and and, uh, we have a great time. Speaking also of that, um, everybody, you can hear well, I take it. Nobody's got a dead spot anywhere that we know of. We got all the speakers working, the soundboard's going. Brother John, do you want to share with us? We've got the new remote working here, I think. I hope so. Does that, does that sound okay? I just, uh, just want to let everybody know how blessed I am. I'm, I'm blessed to have joy in my life. Uh, I'm blessed to have the the Patterson family take me in. I'm blessed to have a church family that loves me. And I'm also blessed that God loves me. And, uh, you know, going through some of the things that we've gone through in the the past few years, you, you just totally have to totally give yourself to the Lord completely and trust in the faith that, that no matter what comes along, he's going to take you under his wing and, and make everything right for you. I uh, just pray every day that, uh, that I can be an example that he would be proud of. And, uh, 
I just love each and every one of you here and thank you for for your prayers. <clears throat> thank you for your prayers and and it just meant so much to me to, to see uh, see you guys and uh, to know that you were here. I just go back to the things that John and Joy went through a few years ago and I'll never forget two or three times, you know, John's mentioned to me, he says, I'm, I'm not the man I was. He's, he's changed. And by that, he meant that his devotion to the Lord and his commitment to God was, was, uh, has changed him. And, uh, that was a dynamic thing to hear. And I still tell him every time I, I uh, hear those their testimonies when we were on the cruise, uh, on that Bible study cruise, and boy, uh, it made me cry. <laughs> and, but I still want to hear them again. So I enjoy hearing about their commitment to the Lord and what God's done in their lives, and it's just been a tremendous thing. Well, I've also sent out an email calling for a men's meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, we need to cover a few things. And uh, hopefully you'll be thinking about those things and have some ideas and whatever that uh, we can do to get some of these physical issues around the property solved and some other things that we brought up there. Okay, I think I've got everything covered. And uh, so we'll turn now to Genesis chapter 14, if you would, please. Genesis chapter 14. I've been thinking about the concept and idea of reward. And I know that's nothing new for this church at all. But you know, for a lot of churches it is. They rarely speak of such things. And the whole idea and concept of reward as it's presented to us in the Bible. And of course, there's no way we will be able to cover everything that the Bible has to say about reward but I do want to look at what it says here in Genesis 14 and 15 dealing with Abraham and the experience that he had and what God told him regarding the covenant that he had made with him in chapter 14 it says there that some kings had gathered together and uh, a couple groups of kings to have a battle. And you'll see in verse 2, it says the kings in verse 1, led by Keterlomer, did battle with the kings in verse 2, led by the king of Sodom. And it tells us in verse 3, these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keterlomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So we find the outcome of that whole thing was that Keterlomer had won the battle, and they were his subjects for twelve years. In the thirteenth year they rebelled against him. And then one year later... We see in verse 15, the 14th year, Keterlomer came back against these kings that were rebelling against him. 
And it gives us the name of, of these uh, that were with him. And it says, And they smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Sheva, Kiriathim. I don't know if I got those too close to being right, but I just swam right through it. And the Horites in their, in Mount, their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and they returned and came to Enmishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in uh, Hazazon Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zor, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Ketolomer, the king of Elam, and with the other kings that were uh, confederate with him. And in verse 10, it says, And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. So their act of rebellion uh, didn't pay off. Keter Lomer was successful over them. And it says in verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, that is all their food, and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelled in Sodom and his goods and departed. So, it was a major coup, a victory for Keter Lomer. He suppressed the rebellion, took off with everything they had, the plunder and the spoil, and off he went and left Sodom and his group empty-handed. So in verse 13, we find, though, that one had escaped. And he came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and brother of uh, Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house. Now what would those servants be? What does that phrase mean, born in his own house? means they were slaves. And you'll see it in the next verse. 318 of them, and they pursued them unto Dan, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants, or his slaves, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. Now you might wonder, why does he say it's on the left hand of Damascus? The actual location was on the north side. Well, it's because the Middle Easterners orient themselves looking to the east. It's like you were standing in the Mediterranean overlooking the land of Israel. And you'll see oftentimes in scripture, you know, certain one was on the right, certain one was on the left. So when he says he's on the, uh, Hobah was on the left hand of Damascus, it means it was on the north side. He pursued them that far. And it says there that Abram brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot. Now, of course, notice what it says. He brought back all the goods and his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So he brought back the goods and the people 
of Sodom and his confederate kings, along with the goods of his nephew Lot. And then in verse 17, it says, The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketolomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is in uh, is the king's dale. And then we have this little meeting that took place in before Abraham or Abram could actually meet with Lot. And it was this one Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, you know well that Melchizedek, whose name means, uh, or king of Salem, means king of righteousness. And he came out to meet him. In Psalm 110.4, we find that, says there that Jesus Christ ultimately would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you'll look over at Zechariah chapter 6, I do want you to turn there. Zechariah chapter 6. So, might take you a little while to get over there. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. This is a passage about the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it tells us there in verse 13, he shall build the temple of the Lord. That is, that's the millennial temple. And he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So what's the significance or point here? That this Melchizedek, who was uh, king of Salem, king of righteousness, and it says that he was also the priest of the Most High God. And it tells us here that in, in Zechariah, he's going to rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. And that is to say that in the millennium, in the rule of Christ, when he returns, the role of king and priest will be united together into one. At present, the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven serving as our great high priest. He's not there serving as our king. But one day, those roles will be united together. Now, and of course, this presents him as, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. But to move on, it says in verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Now that's all that we have recorded there concerning this encounter of Abram with this king of Salem, Melchizedek. And it indicates to us uh, several things. It says there that he brought forth bread and wine. Bread and wine, some just indicate that this, you know, he came to provide uh, food for Abram's army as he was on his return from this encounter. But it also indicates that there was a, these were the elements of a covenant. And it indicates to us that there was a prior relationship of Abram with the Lord God. Now, of course, we know that. Because we know the history going back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. So if you just turn about two pages to the left, you'll probably hit 12.1. It works that way for me in my Bible. And in 12.1, it says there, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. Now, I don't know exactly how far you want to extend the whole idea of a curse, but for for them to take Abraham's nephew, Lot, I think fell under that curse. And God honored what he told he would Abram he would do for him. He says, Him that blesses you I will bless, and him that curses you I will curse. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In other words, anybody causes you any problems, Abram? I'm going to cause them some problems. <laughs> It's not going to pay. And so he gave him tithes of all. And what I'm indicating here is that apparently back in Ur, Abram had entered into some kind of covenant relationship with with God. The fact that he was willing to pay him tithes in this encounter in type through the king of Salem was an indicator that Abram was showing his loyalty and his devotion to God in heaven, to the God most high, it says here. Now, this does take us a little deeper than what it would appear, at least to me, on the surface, due to what follows next. Because following upon this little incident then, it says, The king of Sodom, in verse 21, said to Abram, Give me the persons, and you take the goods, and you keep those. In other words, you went up there and got all these things back. We'll just strike a deal here. You take all the goods. You give me the people. I'll be able to rebuild my life 
with all the slaves that I had and the ones that you took, and, and we'll call it even Stephen, good deal, as it were. But notice Abram's response to that. He said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, I've made a promise. I have made a commitment to God in heaven, and I'm going to show forth my devotion to him by refusing to take your offer. I have no interest and taking anything from you. I think this is one of the early indications of what it means for a believer who has made his commitment and devotion to Christ to be separate from the world. Because you see, these were worldly kings, and Abram had no desire to be enriched by a king of the earth. He was showing forth his full devotion and fidelity to the God of heaven by having no part in what the king of Sodom wanted to offer him. I don't want to be enriched by you. And in doing so, you know, he says there that uh, in, at the end of verse 23, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. This would prevent the king of Sodom from ever coming back to Abram and saying, look, don't forget where you got all those goods. It kept Abram from being in subjection to an earthly king. It allowed Abram to remain wholly devoted to the Lord God. Which was important because of what we have been speaking of in past weeks regarding our separation from the world. The cosmos, as it were. You know, the cosmos was in existence in Abraham's day. You remember in Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that strange phrase where it says, according to the, the course of this world. And we saw that the literal expression of that was according to the age of the cosmos. And all that Paul was trying to tell the church at Ephesus there was that this age in which you and I presently live has come to its full expression. All the principles and guides that this world has put forth over the past centuries have found full fruition in this present age in which we live. And of course, as we approach the end of this age, we are seeing it manifested more and more and more. We see it in every area of life, whether it be in politics or government or education or all these other things that we've mentioned in weeks past. They're uniting together 
and you're seeing a stronger uh, and more vibrant revealing of the world's desires and its determinations to all come together and meet the needs of man. We can do it on our own. And Abraham, Abram, excuse me, at that point, way back then, set forth a principle for you and I to not be a part of that. Now, you say, well, does that mean we're not supposed to be rich? Well, remember, Abram was a very wealthy person. But just remember where Abram received his wealth. He did not receive his wealth in such a manner that it allowed him to compromise his relationship with the Lord God of heaven so that he was in subjection to any of the kings of the earth, putting him in a compromising situation. And he was able to show his loyalty and his devotion to God because of it. As a matter of fact, he says, I won't even take a thread even to a shoe latchet. In verse 23, I will not take anything that is thine, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. Aner, Eskol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. They can have theirs, but not me. I'm going to remain separate from all of this. Now, having said all of that then, looking in chapter 15 and verse 1, then notice what the Lord tells Abraham. He says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Can you imagine what it must have felt like for Abram to have refused such wealth, have stepped out in faith, or to use the terminology that we would apply for us today, taken up his cross and determined that he was going to be a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then to have such assurance given to him by God by telling him, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, that's the first time in Scripture that we see the word reward used. And that, that word, according to Strong's, means a payment of a contract. It means compensation. It means salary. It means wages. I'm going to pay you for this, Abraham. And it helps us to develop in our mind God's mindset regarding what he is going to do for those who show forth their loyalty and devotion to him. He says, number one, I'm going to be your shield. Well, in the ancient contracts that kings and vassals would or maybe I should say not a contract so much as a treaty, would sign with each other, was that the king 
and the subjects would have this understanding that the king would be their shield, their protector. It's really just like what Abraham or Abram did for his nephew Lot. He served to protect him. As soon as he found out he was in trouble, he went out and delivered him. And that's what God was promising Abram that he would do for him as his shield. And it's interesting if you look up the verses uh, concerning a shield, they're very interesting. If you look up shield in the historical books, you'll find almost always it's referring to a literal shield. In other words, Saul's shield, David's shield, or somebody like that, Goliath, whoever. But when you turn to the Psalms, then you find the figurative use of God, our Father, being a shield for us, a shield and a buckler, a protector, one who looks out for our interests, the interests of those who have given their devotion to him. Then he tells Abram, he says, you are not only, not only am I going to be your shield, but thy exceeding great reward. Now, in other words, I'm going to pay you. I'll reward you financially, monetarily, materially, in some fashion. I'm going to look out after you, Abraham. And I'll meet your needs. Well, in consequence to that, Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless. Now, it's interesting also to me that immediately, because of God's promise, and of course there was an earlier promise of land associated with this, Abram immediately said, well, I don't have an heir. Who am I going to give this to? I'm childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer, of Damascus. Well, who was Eliezer of my house? That simply means he was another one of, he was Abraham's or Abram's chief slave. One who had been elevated to the position of steward. He was the one who oversaw all the activities of Abram's house. Now, of course, when we say Abram's house, think household. Because he wasn't living in a house. You know, he was living in a tent. And their tents were pretty big and pretty elaborate. And they had rooms in them and so on. And there would have been many such tents. And many such, I mean, it was been like a little city nearly. I mean, after all, there was 318 men, slaves, who went with Abram to deliver Lot. So this was quite some task that Eliezer was given to be the steward over his house. And if you don't give me a child, then the only one I have here is this, this slave in my house. So in verse 3, he says, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. There we find that expression again. One born in my house. He belongs to me. I own him. And he's the only one at this point that is the rightful heir. 
Well, in response to that, verse 4, the Lord said, Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels, from your own body, shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if you be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. That was quite a promise for a guy that didn't have any kids to look up into the heavens, especially back then when there was no light pollution to ruin the sky for him and he could look up and see all the sky full of stars and to have that promise given to him that his descendants would be like the stars of heaven. And it says there, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. He counted it to him for righteousness. Simply on the act of faith. Because Abram believed what God told him he would do. Now, what, what was the total extent of that payment? Well, we know that he says he would inherit the land. In verse 7, he says, I am the Lord that brought thee forth, uh, brought thee out of the uh, Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. But you know what? If you look over in, where was that? Is it in Romans chapter 4? Four, I keep getting it mixed up with 14. It's Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. And we notice there that he says, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So there we see Paul making reference back to this righteousness that Abram received because of his faith. And it wasn't limited just to the land of Canaan. But Paul tells us here, it's to the whole world. And of course, ultimately, through the Messiah, he will inherit the world. And those who are the faithful and loyal followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Abraham or Abram was devoted to the Lord God and showed his devotion by refusing to take anything from the king of Sodom, he said, I'm going to give you a reward. I will materially pay you back. I will bless you for that. Now, having said that, Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 18. Look at the connection with this matter of righteousness. The writer of Proverbs says, The wicked worketh a deceitful work, 
But to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Now, there are many, several words translated reward in the Old Testament. But this word reward here is the same one used back in chapter 15, verse 1 of Genesis. To him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. In other words, a sure payment. There's going to come a, a, a benefit back to you because of your righteousness. And then if you'll look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 10. And you might remember that in Isaiah chapter 40 begins the, it's the second half of Isaiah's book. And his prophecy concerning Israel, the surrounding nations. And the coming of the Messiah. He says there, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. His reward is with him. You know, we, we hear, I mean, I know we're prone to think this way. When the Lord comes, he's going to judge. And he is. But we forget, on the positive side, the Lord is going to come with his reward for the righteous. He is going to come with his payment for those who have been faithful and loyal and have shown their devotion to him. How? In practical ways. Just as Abram refused to take part in the affairs of the world, in this worldly king, the king of Sodom, so he expects us to remain separate and apart from the affairs of this world. Now, Abram lived in the world, in the cosmos, but he remained apart from it. And he didn't allow its system to enrich him. He allowed the blessings of God to give him all that he owned and had. Then if you'll look over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24... A familiar passage to, to us. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 24. And you might remember that as a part of the promise, closely connected with reward was the matter of inheritance. He told, God told Abraham, I will cause you to inherit the land. Now, if you study the word inherit, you'll find that it means to come into possession of, to actually have it in your hands, as it were. So if you have the inheritance, it's yours. It's something that you actually possess. And a reward is something you possess. They're closely connected. Well, you'll see here in Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance or the wages of the inheritance. Whatever it is that the Lord determines that that will be for you, know that he's going to pay. Why? For you serve the Lord Christ. And then he says, but he that doeth wrong shall receive or get paid for the wrong which he has done. And there is no respect of persons. Now, it just amazes me when I look at the literalness of what he's telling us there. When he says he is no respecter of persons, and I've mentioned this on several occasions, he does not regard the face. God is not going to look at any single face. And boy, you talk about facial recognition programs. God knows our faces. I was looking at a website the other day that showed a crowd of like streets full. I mean, there was thousands and thousands and thousands of people in there, but the resolution was so high that you could zero in on one single face and you could, you know, you could, if you knew the person, you could look at it and you could know who they were. That's exactly how it'll be with God. He knows who we are. But he has no regard or respect to the face. You've done wrong. He says you're going to get paid for the wrong. You do right. You'll receive the reward of the, of the inheritance. That's why then in verse 23, he admonishes, admonishes the believers at Colossae in this way. He says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily. As to the Lord and not unto men. The word heartily means doing it from the soul. Doing it from the depths of your being. I relate that back to Abram. Abram's devotion to God ran so deep and so true that God said of him, he says, I know that you'll steer your household and your children aright. And I I sure wish I could have the Lord say that about me. That my depth of devotion, my commitment to serving God ran so deep in my soul, in my heart, that he could say of me, I know in any given situation that might arise, I know what he's going to do. I know how he'll react. I know the choice he will make. Wouldn't it be great for the Lord to be able to say that of all of us? That he knows us to such a point and such a degree that he has no worries about the choices we will make. You see, if we have doubting in our heart, if we are like James says, the waves of the sea tossed to and fro, Don't let that man think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord. That's why it takes a solid, sound commitment 
to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 22, and the, the Lord ends his word to us by telling us in verse 12, he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. These things should do nothing but stir us in the soul, stir us in our heart, to give us a sense of recommitment, as it were, or a sense of commitment, if you never have, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your soul, as Colossians says, or as we would say it frequently, with all of our heart, with everything we have. Walking circumspectly, Paul says, being wise and discerning to the ways of the world and what's going on around us and being careful that we don't become entangled with the world's ways and consistently show forth and manifest ourselves by our actions that we are owned by someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul and the other apostles could consistently call themselves slaves of God and slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they knew that he was their master, he owned them. Jerry read that verse just a little while ago in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, where it says, in the King James, it says, a peculiar people. But in the translation you were reading, it said a purchased possession, was it, or a purchased people? A purchased people. Owned, huh? You changed it yourself. Okay. I I was going to ask you what translation that was. It's it's your own. (laughs) But that's what it means. That's what that word peculiar there means. Purchased, owned by God. Belonging to him. That's why the scriptures talk about us. uh, Him having redeemed us. He bought us. Well, if he bought something, if you buy something, you own it. It's your possession. He bought us. He owns us. We are his possession. Now we need to act and live. And accordingly, he will properly reward us in that coming day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is such a promise of a coming day to know that when we go to the grave, that life is not over, that there's a resurrection to come, that there's a promise of a new age, an age in which your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule and reign over the earth, an age in which you have invited your loyal, faithful disciples to share in that coming rule and be participants in the administration of that age and that government. Lord, let us be ever aware and faithful to what you've called us to do and to be, as Paul said, to walk worthy of that vocation and calling.
Let us be true to our Savior in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.